Hi everyone, my name is Steven Wakabayashi and you're listening to Yellow Glitter, Mindfulness Through the Eyes and Soul of a Gay Asian. This episode, we're joined by a very special guest. Kalia Mendoza is a nonviolent direct action trainer, disaster preparedness expert recognized by Time Magazine, and has spent the last 20 years of his life fighting for social justice. And I thought it'd be really great to bring him on to talk a little bit about what's going on and about activism, protesting, and direct action. So welcome, Kalyan. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Yellow Glitter. How's everyone doing? <laughs> oh, doing so well, but not really, you know. Yeah. Things are, things are just really tough, really intense right now. How are you doing? I'm exhausted, overwhelmed, but also inspired uh-huh. by the power that's being built all over the U.S. and all over the world for Black Lives. Yeah. And since a week ago, we just watched something unfold again in front of our eyes. Last week, George Floyd was suffocated to death after a police officer pinned him to the ground with his knees on his neck for almost nine minutes. And he struggled on the ground, said he couldn't breathe, cried out for his mom. And after he went unresponsive after six minutes, the police officer still had his knee in his neck for another three minutes. And they never once checked on his pulse. And basically, we saw a man get murdered right in front of our eyes. People are just so scared. They're so angry. They're so upset right now. And, you know, rightfully so, right? And I just wanted to kind of get your take on just what is going on in the world right now. What we're seeing in this moment is a culmination of anger, black pain, and a complete distrust of the settler colonial state and its security apparatus. Many folks that are out in the streets uh, grew up when Trayvon Martin was murdered, Mm -hmm. came of age when Michael Brown was murdered, have heard, watched, or um, been told about the murders of Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor, and so many other Black lives. And in this moment, we're living in a pandemic where COVID has uh, basically shown us that the U.S. government doesn't have the leadership to be able to protect the people. They can purchase riot gear for one riot um, police officer, but with the same amount of money, they can buy so many forms of personal protective equipment for our frontline hospital workers. So people are rightfully angry, and this rage is real, and we need to center Black rage, Black struggle, and Black lives right now. Mm, Absolutely. And if we see how quickly he reacted, Trump reacted to the protests, these peaceful protests, in a single day, he's able to mobilize more people than Mm -hmm. any state had when we had a pandemic on our hands. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely unjust. And people are all on the streets putting their lives at risk, not only because we have a pandemic with COVID happening, but because there are police officers just beating up 
folks that aren't going along with the flow. And I saw on your social media you took part in the protest this weekend. How was that? It was, it was powerful and beautiful. Um, and watching uh, black and non-black folks of color uh, leading the march and watching so many communities in Queens. Sorry, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. Um, just joining together and committing themselves to the fight for black lives was, was just so powerful. Um, it was a nonviolent protest. It was a gathering of power and a show of solidarity. Yeah. I saw some videos uh, posted from France a couple days ago on social media. And that, that got me really emotional too, how folks all around the world were standing in solidarity out in their streets too in amidst this pandemic and i think what is really beautiful is just all the folks of color are really coming out and mm -hmm. helping support our black brothers black sisters black siblings and we're sending a message to our white friends right show yeah. up be a part of us, walk with us. And I, ju I just wish they would listen, <laughs> you know? Yeah. One of the videos I watched was Kiki Palmer. She was asking some of the men in militia to just walk in solidarity and a parade, a peaceful protest. And they, <laughs> because all they could do was just kneel. And in my uh -huh. head, I was like, we are past the point of kneeling. Yeah, Colin Kaepernick essentially don't have careers anymore because of that. And now, as we've gotten this far, what they're trying to do is just so far beyond what is needed. And what has been the biggest eye-awakening moment is to really see all my friends on social media and who stands for what. And mm -hmm. one of the things that really upset me too was seeing a lot of my more affluent folks complaining about the riots and it was a, an educational moment to tell them. Riots aren't necessarily a part of the protest. We have riots happening independently when sports teams win or lose. How outrageous. And as a part of this, you have peaceful protesters and they may or may not be a part of the riots, but it's not directly correlated. Getting rid of the riots does not bring the social justice that is needed. Has this moment brought any revelations to you in particular? Yes, what we're seeing right now is wide-scale mass support. And I wouldn't say, I would even say mass uprising. Yeah. People are tired of the inequity. People are tired of the murdering of black lives. People are tired of an inept government that cares more about its ratings than it does about the people. Mm-hmm. What, what's beautiful in this moment is that people are discovering their power, whether that is uh, Black folks leading the movement or whether it's folks who might not have necessarily identified as activists saying, I don't know what to do. I'm going to learn and I'm going to follow Black leadership to do what needs to be done. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm just so blessed to have you as a friend, but also so blessed Same. to have you on this podcast to talk 
about your experience with protesting. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how did you even get started and what is your story? Yeah, like many people, I came into this young. One of my first actions that I organized was with the Filipino Youth Coalition when I was middle high school. There was over-policing. I mean, there was just policing on our campus. Um, And during the time, I grew up in um, San Jose, and um, there... they were, they were doing these sweeps on campus where they would round up Vietnamese and Filipino students and question us um, whether or not we were affiliated with a gang, whether we knew anyone that was affiliated with a gang. And um, I was in one of these sweeps, and I was questioned by the vice principal. And after finding out that um, this was happening to so many people, the Filipino uh, Youth Coalition organized a action where we would share our stories with the board of um, supervisors for the district. And I went up on the stage and I was shaking. Um, uh, I've never spoken in public before, let alone to people who had, you know, power. And as I was um, telling my story in a very timid voice, I remember seeing a couple of the um, supervisors uh, literally falling asleep. And I said, you know what, forget this. And I started hitting the podium what do we want? And started to chant. And in thunderous roar, folks responded with justice. So it was in that moment that I realized that everyone, anyone can be an activist and an organizer. It's about commitment. It's about uh, your values. It's about being as authentic to yourself and being ready to speak truth to power. And since then, I've been trained, have trained, have participated in actions um, all around the world. And a lot of my nonviolent direct action experience, my street, med- street medic experience, started before the WTO protest in 99, um, where I was trained by the Ruckus Society on how to keep people safe and protect protesters in Seattle. Since then, I've organized action camps, trainings, participated in other mobilizations. Um, I was in Ferguson, Standing Rock, um, and most recently um, at the occupation of Ihumatau in Aotearoa, otherwise known as New Zealand, which was a Maori-led uh, land occupation um, fighting for their land from the, from the crown and the government. So, yeah, I pretty much have grown up as an activist and organizer, and it's how I lead my life. That is just so, so amazing. And out of that, you have blossomed this amazing organization across front lines to really help educate folks with all the stuff that you've learned. And I I don't want to butcher (laughs) how I might describe your organization, but I just wanted to hear from you. What is Across Front Lines? We're basically trainers that work with human rights defenders in the U.S. and the Global South to keep their communities safe and protected against violence. And we work alongside them to fight for a just and more equitable world. Yeah, and you do so many trainings all around the United States, the world, to help people bring about change, but also ensuring that they have the right information, which is so critical because when you are putting yourself up in a protest, 
you have law enforcement who don't want a part of that and who will do everything in their power to put you away, to silence you. And it takes a lot of rigorous training and knowledge to be able to even have a voice. And one of my biggest pet peeves right now, especially right now, is while I'm on social media, I see so many posts everywhere on TikTok, on Instagram, Twitter, you name it, with recommendations of what to do during the protest right now, right? Write down this number on your arm, write down this address. And it, it's almost like this game of telephone of how information gets diluted. Even some of the ingredients people are using to wash tear gas off their face, mm -hmm. right? It was uh, some of the ingredients were just outdated five, six mm -hmm. years ago. And so I just wanted to kind of spend a little bit of time right now to go over some of the really important information or just some tips that you would have for folks interested to be a part of the protest, to be a part of the voice that's on the street. I have a bunch of questions. I'm just so curious. And so my first question is, how do you know when you're ready, ready to go out into the streets and protest? That's... Yeah, that's a, I think that's a wonderful question that folks need to ask themselves is what impact can I make by being out in the streets? Because there's so much work that can be done behind the computer screen. There's so much work that can be done on the phone that everyone has a place in the movement. And it doesn't just mean that you have to be out in the streets holding a sign. In fact, a lot of times it's really inaccessible for disabled folks you know, for that expectation for everyone to be out in the streets. But yeah. as we've seen, disability justice activists have mobilized and have educated from behind their screens, training folks during the California wildfires, working with folks on how to live through COVID. So I, I call folks who are wanting to know what to do is to follow disability justice activists like Mia Mingus, like Alice Wong. Um, you can find them on, on Twitter. Um, and regarding your question around like information that's going around, I really invite folks to just interrogate where that information is coming from and do a little bit of research. Anything that I post uh, is either from my direct experience yeah. or um, tried and chewed from um, sources that um, I've worked with. Um, one thing that uh, well, there's several things in terms of preparation for a protest is I like to think about it in terms of preparation should be before, during, and after the protest. Mm -hmm. Before the protest, what you want to do is to find a buddy or a group to go with. You want to be able to um, go with folks that you trust, go with folks that uh, you know what their needs are, um, and make sure that you have the right equipment when going out to protest. That includes everything from um, whatever medication you might need, your ID, because like in some states, if you don't have your ID, um, they're charging you or they're fining you uh, even more. So always look up what your local laws are, even though, those, even though that has kind of been thrown out the window, but always research before you go out. Make sure you have um, water, stay hydrated, bring something to eat before you go. Make sure you have a contact so someone knows where you are 
um, if you're just going with another person and have a, like a set check-in time with them to make sure that um, you are safe. If you're planning on bringing a backpack, having a uh, extra pair of clothes is really helpful. A, um, a plastic bag. And this is for if you do get exposed to tear gas or pepper spray, you want to make sure to, to isolate that from yourself because that stuff is very uh, toxic. You also obviously want to have a mask, both to protect the community, but also to protect your identity. These protests are not, they're not, they're not pride. They're not a um, place where you want your picture taken. They're not a place where you can expect to start from point A to point B. It's important to prepare yourself for that. So just having those basic, what are your basic needs? And also just like having a conversation with either your buddy or yourself about what are you okay with engaging in and when do you leave? So just having those things in your toolbox is helpful. When you're at the protest, one thing that I recommend for folks to do is practice what's called the OODA loop. This is a tool on situational awareness that stands for observe, orient, decide, and act. When we as human beings are put in a stressful situation where our sympathetic nervous system is just going haywire, it's important to have a, a cognitive fallback, kind of a shortcut, like if you're at a protest and there's a lot of people, there's a lot of cops, you want to take a moment and just really um, center yourself, observe, orient, and find what are some, where are you in relation to the police Where are your exit points? Always have an exit wherever you go. Are there crowd dispersal tactics that are already being enforced? Have they um, pulled out a long-range acoustic device? Are the cops in um, riot gear? You know, Um, so all of these um, inputs help you identify kind of what your plan is. And in decide, the D in UDA, is you're deciding what to do. So if you're scanning, you're taking in the information, and all of a sudden you see the police create a line and they lower their visors. That means they're either going to start arresting people or start using crowd dispersal um, tactics. And that's when you want to say, okay, I'm out of here. I'm, and calmly exit. Mm-hmm. And you always just want to be aware of your space at all times. You, you just want to practice mindfulness in a tactical way. So... That's um, that's during, and just really just knowing kind of like what your needs and checking in with yourself and your partner or your um, group about, you know, if you're protesting in the heat, I've had to deal with folks that have had um, heat exhaustion, um, folks that are dehydrated, you know, folks that have been off their medication and didn't realize it because they're, you know, for days, you're just going and going and going. So it's important to check in throughout. And after the protest, aftercare is just so very important because it's not, un, um, it's not unheard of for people to experience uh, either primary or secondary trauma in the situation. So it's very important for folks to do like a somatic scan of themselves to really identify where, noticing what is my body feeling right now? What are my needs right now? And if you are going out into the streets, when you come back, um, find a check-in buddy to do um, just like a holistic check-in. How does your um, physical body feel? How does your emotional self feel? How does your spiritual self feel? 
And with that, it helps to process the trauma that folks are feeling after a protest. I hope that was helpful. Oh my God, that was amazing. And I just learned, I just learned so much. I, you know, I, I want to touch on just what you said in the very beginning, just not even just protesting in public, right? Just this concept of digital protesting that I thought, digital activism that you had mentioned that was really useful. Uh, do you have any advice as to what type of work digitally is the most effective you know, I see so many people just like retweeting content, posting stuff on the Instagram and, you know, uh, tagging things. And do you have any recommendations of if somebody isn't able to go in person? Sure. There's two recommendations that I've um, shared with folks who I know who are immune compromised or just not able to um, go out. One is to uplift Black voices, like following folks like Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, the organizers behind and founders behind Black Lives Matter, really uplifting their tweets, their stories, their perspective is important right now. Secondly, learning more about how your community has benefited from uh, Black organizers in the past. As a Filipinx, as an Asian American, I recognize that we owe our political identity and so many of the benefits and rights that we have right now to Black organizers. And, you know, along with um, educating yourself, reaching out and engaging with your family. And this is especially for the Asian American folks. During Ferguson October, when the organizers in Ferguson had gathered activists and organizers from all over the country, one of the asks was to go back into our communities and to talk about anti-Blackness, to address it, to start to surface it and process it. Because we can't just be about the work in the streets. We need to be about the work in our own communities as well. You had mentioned Patrice Colors. I just went to a talk with her digitally um, last week or this week. <sighs> my weeks just blur together. She's an amazing woman. Oh my God. She is. Oh she is. my God. If anyone has the opportunity to just listen to any of the folks, the founders of Black Lives Matter, highly, highly recommended. I just want to get back to the protesting, the physical protesting, uh -huh. just a little bit. Um, I have some questions that I'm really curious about. So what are some of the things you see folks struggling with the most, especially when folks go for the first time? Yeah, I think that what I have seen in my two decades of organizing yeah. is folks just not being prepared, really about their needs. It's like, it's good to bring a sign, but also it's good to bring everything that you need. Because the last thing you want is for organizers to have to expend time and energy to take care of you because you forgot your water. I saw this a lot in Standing Rock, where well-intentioned non-Indigenous folks would come in and be like, so where's my tent? And all the Native folks are like, are you kidding me? So just... Um, I think people struggle with the, um, there, it's, um, it's so hyper-glamorized what protesting is. 
and some of like the basics of take care of yourself so you can take care of the community is one thing that I hope people, um, if they're going to have a takeaway from this, is that. Another thing is being put in a hyper-aroused or hypo-aroused state when you are, when you're called to this work, it's important to know what your limitations are and to be very real with yourself because it does not help the movement, nor you, nor anyone. Another thing that I see folks struggle with is um, centering themselves if they're not directly affected by the movement or by the issues. And what I strongly invite folks to do is to find out how you can be of service. When I do trainings on solidarity, I tell folks, never show up to someone's house without an offering. That includes protests, right? It's great to um, bring your voice, but especially if you are a non-Black person, this is not the time for you to be the center of the protests. This is not the time to get in front of the march. What is needed and what I love seeing is like when non-Black folks, especially white folks, are carrying pallets of water for everyone else. Find out how you can support from the back and not center yourself in the front. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are some primary things that I see um, are issues that arise. Um, and we are all learning. And it's important to learn publicly and to be accountable for any harm and then to adjust and change that behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That was really powerful. I had a couple friends that went protesting this past weekend too and they ended up getting arrested and i know for many folks this is the truth of protesting especially during times when the police fear <laughs> it's not fear for their lives they fear for the jobs right what are some tips that you can provide for folks who get in that really tough situation of do I stay here? Do I stand here? Or should I walk away? You know, and some folks, they see the videos, right? And I think they're motivated in part due to seeing the folks who do stand and, you know, get hyper, like you said, like hyper glamorizing these photos, these shots, right? Where this single protester has all these, you know, police like surrounding them. To me, the big thing that never gets captured is what happens really during that moment and even after that moment and so i just i'm just curious from your perspective when the situation gets very intense the police they're headed in they're pushing and thoughts are going around someone's head just how how do you prepare for that moment and what should you do there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from hong kong protesters where they, you know, folks were wearing helmets, folks are, you know, had the proper protective equipment. Um, there is a lot that you can do to prepare yourself um, physically, but also, like I said earlier, really checking in with yourself about what are you okay with? What are you not okay with? Because no one is going to say, give up your lives right now for the movement. And if they do, you want to question them. If we look back at the civil rights history, the lunch counter sit ins, and Rosa Parks refusing to get up from her seat in the front of the bus, they were trained by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Mm-hmm. They were trained by the Highlander Institute. So a lot of these folks have had that training, have been put in stress situations mm-hmm. where they were able to identify their triggers, their anchors, and to, to center themselves. I applaud folks who want to support 
But right now, we need to figure out how to protect Black organizers, how to protect ourselves, and to ask our question, what am I bringing to this? What am I contributing? Yeah. Um, having been beaten up and dragged by police all over the world, it's, um, it's, it's extremely, it, it took me a decade to get over being brutalized by Chinese military and police in Beijing. And one must ask themselves, what, what are my supports after this happens? Because if you don't have that you need to think about the long term because this is going to be a long struggle. And it's important for folks to have that agency to be able to decide, I can't, I can't participate or I can't participate and this is how I'm going to do it. I'm not telling people to do one thing or another. I'm asking folks to really look into themselves about what their capacity is, what their ability is, and what can they actually contribute in doing any kind of direct action. Sure. Yeah, so you mentioned Beijing. What happened? In 2001, I was part of the Tibet movement, Tibetan freedom movement. And we found out that um, Beijing was given the honor of hosting the 2008 Olympics. For the next seven years, I uh, was trained to engage in nonviolent direct action on the ground in Beijing. It was everything from learning how to evade the Chinese government, learning how to navigate the blockades, being ready to be tasered, um, shot, put in a um, prison camp or a laogai, or even being executed. It was an intensive seven years of preparation. And on August 8th, 2008, myself and two other allies to the Tibetan people unfurled um, Tibetan flags a kilometer away from the Bird's Nest Stadium. In order to get there, we had to do some activist magic to get through uh, multiple security blockades. And when we did our action in front of thousands of people, we were taken down. I, I think I was taken down first, if I remember the, the, the AP footage correctly. I was taken down first by two Chinese soldiers. My foot was broken in two places and they bashed my head into the concrete um, repeatedly. My action team were also brutalized and beaten up, but I think they went harder on me because they thought I was Tibetan. They thought I could get, they could get away with it. In the next about 24 hours, they had waterboarded us in a, in a park. They put us in stress positions where they sat on our, um, our the tops of our necks while we were kneeling down, wow. um, and our arms were be, uh, behind our behind our backs. And there was a point where I remember they had us on all three of us next to one another on our knees, and they kicked us over, and I fell on the right side of my face. And I looked at um, Cesar, who was on the action team, and I remember him giving me this like nod um, and saying, "Free Tibet," um, yeah. and. The nod was kind of like, um, you know, today's a good day to die. This, this, whatever comes of this, this was worth it. Wow. And this was an image that I've seen so many times in human rights reports about how um, people in, um, inside Tibet and China were executed. Uh, thankfully, that didn't happen. And we were um, interrogated for hours, put into separate um, cells. I don't know where we were. And then uh, uh, deported from, um, from China and unable to go back. How, how has that, wow, it, I, I'm like speechless. Um, 
How, how has that experience been like for your other folks? Have you guys talked about this before with your other folks that had gone through that with you? We, we, had, um, we had a couple gatherings, but there was just such deep trauma yeah. because there was no aftercare. And at the time, like, I couldn't provide aftercare for folks. I just did not have the ability. In fact, I couldn't be around other Asian people because of the trauma. And I haven't spoken to them in years, but I think about them all the time. And that's one thing. That's why I keep on talking about emotional aftercare. Emotional safety and security is so important to doing the work in the long term. Because months after that, I had to disengage with the movement for a year just to work on my own healing. Of course. Just being faced with such... I always, I always say, you know, whenever we're faced with these life and death moments, like true life and death, right? We awaken a part of ourselves. I'm really sure that that has had lasting effects on you, but it has transformed you for the better and made you into who you are today. Thank you. I'd like to think that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you're doing is just so amazing. And I... I really want to jump to the other topic that you had mentioned. What does Asian solidarity look like with Black folks? Solidarity to me means power with, not power over. It means saying that I am going to be shoulder to shoulder with you, but also I will have your back in this work. And that doesn't just mean out in the streets. That also means digitally online when folks are spouting, spouting anti-Blackness is to address it. When family members are doing it, is to address it. It means supporting um, Black organizations, Black businesses. And many folks are guilty of this. We cannot consume Black culture and then try to divorce ourselves from Black struggle. Yeah, It's important for us to find ways to show up. That can be something as powerful as holding space for the Black folks in your life, just to listen just to be there, to let them know that they are seen, that their pain is valid, and to commit ourselves to that. There is so much anti-Blackness within our communities, and it's, it's very complicated, right? For many Asian communities, coming to the U.S. had a background in ties around U.S. imperialism. Yeah. A lot of people say, well, we're not the ones that, that own slaves, but we are still benefiting from white supremacy in a system that still exploits black labor, that um, incarcerates black people to such a high extent. I mean, just like looking at basic numbers and maternal mortality rates is extremely high with black folks that give birth. And looking at COVID in this moment, the community that is hardest hit but under-resourced are black and indigenous communities two mar the most marginalized communities um, in the country. So I think there's, we need to educate ourselves, we need to commit ourselves, and then we need to take action in the ways that we can. I have so many friends throughout so many years of my life in so many stages. And with that, I have on my Facebook friends list a whole wide array of thoughts. And I think it really helps to educate me and to remind myself some of the things that go through people's heads 
as to why they don't do these things that might come across as obvious, right, to you or myself. And one of the things that keeps popping up with some of my Asian friends when asked about creating space, having solidarity with our Black community, they say, well, they didn't show up for us during COVID. What would you say to them when they bring up this tit-for-tat situation with Black folks? With folks who are saying, where were Black people when we were being attacked by COVID? To them, I would like to say they were there. There were numerous Black folks that were decrying attacks against the Asian community. In fact, it was Black folks that I saw first talking about the systemic racism that Asians faced by all of the news outlets were just posting Asian faces in COVID. Or there has been some tension with our communities, but that does not necessarily mean that they can paint all Black people are against um, Asians or all Black people weren't there for us because they were and they have been they have been. If folks knew their history, they would know that Black people have been there for us. Yeah. I, I, I think the difficult part is when you have accounts like Jack Fruit and Asians with Attitude and what they were posting, you know. They were posting a lot of these videos of Black on Asian violence, especially during COVID. And I think for folks, what they take from that is just so face value, right? They watch a video and then they extrapolate that and make assumptions about a community. And meanwhile, we're always saying, well, we're not a part of, you know, that book of thought. And I think people just really need to also educate themselves. What they see is not always what you get. You, exactly. you know, it, that doesn't represent a community. It doesn't represent, by all means, like the people that might be immediately around you, unless that was them, you know. Yeah. And I think uh, it's unfortunate we have some of these incidents occur, but I'd like to, you know, always remind myself that they these are isolated incidents in a way that, you know, it's systemic, right? But mm-hmm. it's also isolated to that person. You know, they, mm-hmm. they may have poor coping strategies, right? And I always want to remind folks that instead of focusing also on what isn't right, to focus on what do we want more of, right? What is yeah. going right? And I think for folks, it's really hard sometimes. And I I think in the case of police brutality, yes, like stand up against it. But at the end of the day, if it's love, compassion, if it's, you know, solidarity with one another, if we can't show up in the way that we want to be treated or we want to have, you know, the community around us treat each other, we're never going to get to that point. Yeah. And so I, we just, we need to turn some of that stuff off and just focus on what we want more of and doing more of that. Exactly, exactly. And it's important for folks to kind of self-reflect about the narratives that they're being fed. Because in this country, anti-blackness is just so the default that we don't question, you know, what was the... Um, uh, mainstream media narrative about COVID. It was started by Asians. So with that xenophobia, with that anti-Asian racism, of course people are going to um, absorb that. So 
if we want the interpersonal attacks to stop, we must, we must also focus on the systemic oppression that all of our communities are facing, especially yeah, now. Totally agreed. I think this was such a good conversation. I just want to ask just like is there anything else specifically around just like the events happening right now that we haven't talked about that you want to touch on um yeah uh so i had created a poster last year um that had asians for black lives on it that um had become popular in the last few days um i invite folks and i can send you the file or if people want to email me at kala that's k-a-l-a at acrossfrontlines.org um, they can get um, the file for themselves to print out to show their solidarity both in the streets but also at home. I think that there is uh, a lot that folks can do in their own self-education before going out into the streets, and that's what I really implore people to do. And if people decide not to go out into the streets, taking action by speaking with your your family, with your friends, and by speaking, I don't mean speaking at or talking at or quote-unquote educating at, but rather coming from a place of curiosity and inquiry and asking questions. Why do you feel that way? Where did you get that information? Mm -hmm. And not combating it with um, you're ignorant or coming from that place, but we have been socialized to believe things. So help them process through curiosity, through gentle inquiry. Um, And I think that's a really great place to start, especially now. Absolutely. And your poster is so beautiful. It's so well designed. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm seeing it pop up everywhere. And then I'm telling people, attribute, <laughs> attribute, <laughs> attribution, attribution. <laughs> it, like, that should be, a, you know, it's just like PSA. Like, if you're going to take any post, like any picture, any image, and it's not yours, attribute the artist, you know? It takes Thank like you. two seconds. Yeah. And by all means, it's just like spread the wealth, you know. And yeah, you've made posters, not just like Asians for black lives, but for all the different ethnicities within the larger Asian community. And so definitely check your, um, oh, also check your Instagram out, right? You posted it there. Yes, it's there as well. Yeah. It's at, um, at Kala. K-A-L-A Mendoza, M-E-N-D-O-Z-A. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So definitely check that out on his Instagram to see what he's up to, see his posts, uh, just amazing stuff. But also get those posters, <laughs> repost them on Instagram, put them on Twitter, get them everywhere. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, amazing. And definitely want to have you back for part two to just talk a little bit about your background, but... I just absolutely love where we ended up with in this conversation. And this is not the end, but the beginning of a conversation. Lovely. I look forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And yeah, I absolutely, absolutely implore everyone to also be present during this time and Mm. Take some time to sit with yourself and to feel what's happening, right? And to check in with yourself if you have the energy to be out with folks. Because definitely like what I learned from this episode was really 
if you are not prepared and if you don't have the energy or the mental capacity to go out, then there's other things. And I think as a part of this movement, it's a collective effort. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you. <laughs> I appreciate you as well. Thank yeah, you. Thank you so much. And to all the listeners, thank you for listening. And hope your day can be a little bit more mindful. <laughs> Bye now. Goodbye, everyone. Please love yourselves and one another more than the state and systems of oppression hates us.